We're continuing in our series, What Does It Mean to Follow Jesus? And in this series, we've seen that following Jesus means experiencing God's grace, having a real relationship with Him, uh, where we choose to spend time with God. We've seen that it includes God's family and, and a strong measure of assurance. Today we're going to look and we're going to see that in this desire that we have to follow Jesus, that Jesus wants us to have His renewing strength. Okay, His renewing strength. Jesus wants us to feel clean and strong. And the Lord's Supper is one of the ways, a very significant way, that He does that. As we jog along in the marathon of life, Jesus wants us to feel both clean and strong, and He's given us the Lord's Supper to do that. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament, along with baptism. These sacraments, they're ceremonies that are designed by God to help us experience His blessings, okay, to enable us to live by His blessings. And we could say that all of the blessings that Jesus has to offer, every single one of the blessings that Jesus has to offer can come to you through the Lord's Supper. That you can receive every single blessing that Jesus has to offer through communion. Um, it, it's like, it's kind of like going back to the marathon analogy, it's, it's like the, the fueling stations, right? When you're running a marathon, they got these stations set up for water. Sometimes all you need is water, right? You grab the cup, you down it, and you throw the cup, right? Other times you need both water and that little bar, that power bar that they give you, right? That's what communion is in the marathon of life. Change analogies, if you're driving on a long trip in a car, right, periodically you have to stop and get gas, right? So you stop, you fuel up the tank, and then you're on your way. Well, other times you stop, you get gas in your car, and you need something more, right? You need some of the most nutritious, healthiest foods you could possibly have, and your heart leaps because you see that not only is it a gas station, but it's got one of those quickie marks, right? And so you go in and you grab your drink, you get your snack, you know, and you hit the road again. You're refueled. That's what the Lord's Supper does for us. Now, the key for us, the key for us is to take it very seriously. To take it seriously and then to understand it as much as we can. Okay, it is a sacrament. There is mystery involved in the Lord's Supper. There are things that sometimes happen during baptism, during the Lord's Supper, that we can't explain. But the key for us is to get as much of it, understand as much of it as we possibly can, because the more you understand it, the more you will be blessed by it. Okay, and so we're going to see three things today that the Lord's Supper does. And so let me just give them to you now. We're going to see first, the Lord's Supper pours into you. Okay, so first it pours into you. Second, the Lord's Supper calls for celebration. And then third, the Lord's Supper pours out of you. Okay, so pours into you, calls for celebration, pours out of you. So first, the Lord's Supper pours into you. Let's look at this first uh, set of verses from John chapter 6, verses 51 to 56. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So these verses might sound a little bit strange to your ears. If you haven't been around the church, this could sound like cannibalism, right? Um, In fact, this is how the people in Jesus' day actually misunderstood what he was saying. Right? Verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? Well, to understand this, what Jesus is talking about here is you have to understand a little bit about the way that Jesus and the Jews of his day thought about the sacrifices back then. Okay? You have to understand that. And so, uh, in order for us to get that, read, let's look at the next verse there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 18. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then verse 18, Consider the people of Israel... Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? That last verse, verse 18, that's, that's key. The focus there, um, this is the thinking that Jesus is tapping into. Jesus is saying, it's, he, it's the same thing. Those who eat the sacrifices actually participate in the altar. Okay, and so you have to understand that the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were offered to God. Okay, there were lots of different kinds of sacrifices. Um, but with some of the sacrifices, so what would happen is they'd put the animal, they'd cut it up actually, and they'd put the, the portion that God wanted up on the altar, and they would barbecue it. Okay, and the idea was, you can read about this in the book of Leviticus, there's other places, you know, as this would roast, the, uh, the scent and the smoke would waft up. And, and the picture that the Old Testament gives us is God up in heaven, you know, smelling the sacrifices, and having them have a soothing effect on God, where God is really pleased with the aroma. The sacrifices were a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, it says over and over and over again. Well, a portion was given to God, and then with a lot of the sacrifices, some of the portion, some of the sacrifice was given to the priest, and then another portion sometimes was given to the person who was making the offering. And so, if you got a portion back, you would eat that. And the picture was, you're having this communal meal. The offerer, the priest, and God are all eating a meal together. And the idea was that if you eat the sacrifice, that you receive the blessing of the sacrifice. Okay? That's the picture. God accepts it. You get to participate in the ceremony. So you participate in the sacrifice. Um, so you receive the blessing of it. Okay, and so the blessings pour out as you eat the sacrifice. If there was a peace offering, you would receive the peace of God as you ate this meal with Him. Right? Does that make sense? And so that's what that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what First Corinthians ten is talking about. Now, so if you think about Jesus talking here in John six, we've already heard. If you've read up, you know, through John in John chapter one, something else is said about Jesus that also helps us understand what Jesus is talking about in John six. In John one verse twenty nine, it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, and so there you see that Jesus is the one who's going to be offered as a sacrifice to take away sins. 
Okay, then later in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, Jesus actually says, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, here in John 6, what we're looking at here, Jesus is giving us this amazing picture of what it means to believe in him. If we want to benefit from the sacrifice that Jesus made, we have to believe in him. We've got to eat his sacrifice. And we do that through faith. We eat his sacrifice. Now, question, does this mean that we eat the literal flesh and the literal and drink the literal blood of Christ? No. No, we don't. We don't. Jesus is actually referring in these verses to communion. He's referring to the Lord's Supper. And at communion, what we eat is bread. What we drink is wine or juice. Okay, that's what's going on. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we are saying not just that Jesus is the sacrifice for sins, but we're saying that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Okay, that's what we're saying. Jesus is not just the Savior, but he's our Savior. Coming and participating in the Lord's Supper is us participating, getting the benefits and the blessings of his sacrifice. You look at, I mean, just to, 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 to flesh out some of the language here, in verse 51, when you come forward and take the Lord's Supper, what you're saying is not just... Well, you're saying that Jesus, that you believe that Jesus is the living bread that has come down from heaven. That's what you're saying, right? If you look at verse 54, to come forward to the Lord's Supper means that you believe that Jesus has eternal life and that Jesus will raise you up on the last day. When you come forward for communion, that's what you're saying. Now, so practically, practically, what does this actually mean for us? Like, how do we put this so that it does something real for us? Um, well, I think the key is verse 56. Jesus there says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay? And so you need to look there at that last phrase. It's this idea of abiding. Of abiding. What this means is that when we come forward, when we take the Lord's Supper, we believe in his sacrifice. It means that we end up, we have a real, ongoing, and close relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to abide. As you do this, this is an effort for you to draw near to Jesus. And for Him to draw near to you. That's the benefit of it. God wants you to know. It's it's as though through the Lord's Supper, God is saying, you have this real, ongoing, and close relationship with me, and I never want you to forget it. I never, ever want you to forget it. This is why we do this every week. Because this is an opportunity for you to receive the blessings of God. For you to be reminded again and again and again, no matter how tough your week has been, no matter what has gone on in your life, you get to come and part of this worship service is God telling you, you are in me and I am in you. Because here's the reality that the Lord's Supper, that communion presents to us. Jesus died for your sins. His blood was shed to wash away everything bad that you have ever done in your life. You come forward and God washes you clean. 
in the flood of His forgiving love, that forgiveness washes over you every time you take the Lord's Supper. That's what God has been saying to you week in and week out. If you understand that, then you can hear it. If you understand that, you can receive that blessing. But it's more than that. Jesus died for your sins and the perfect life of Jesus. The perfect life of Jesus. His perfected, His resurrected, His exalted life. Right? You think about it. He lived on this earth for 33 years. And in everything, He was perfect. He never sinned. His perfect life comes to you. It comes in you at communion. His perfect life. It's, it's kind of like last week when we talked about baptism, right? And why you want to be drenched with the water. Because the idea there is that it's the Holy Spirit touching every single part of you, right? And so it pours over everything so nothing's left untouched. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's a different image, but it's the same reality. The idea here is that God wants you to experience a picture of the blood and the body of Christ, that it would come inside of you so that every part of who you are would be touched, would be affected, would be cleaned and strengthened by the perfect life and the death of Jesus. Does that make sense? And this is the glory. This is the joy that Jesus' presence fills you every time you take the Lord's Supper. And so when you come forward, you want to think, you're coming forward to Jesus. You're coming over to receive these pictures of His body and His blood. And the question you want to ask yourself before you come, as you come, the question you want to ask is, what do I need from Jesus? Seriously, what do you need from Jesus? There are times when what you need is a really good washing, right? You are plagued with guilt. You feel dirty. You feel like you have offended God and other people. And what you need is that cleansing blood of Jesus to wash over you. And if you could just experience that, you would feel forgiven. That's what you need. Glory in the reality that God wants to provide that for you in a way that doesn't just speak to your faith, but that you can see, touch, handle, and taste. God is saying as real as this bread is, as real as the wine and the juice are, that's how real the forgiveness is that flows into you. Right? And so there's times we need cleansing. Then there's times where we need to grow. Right? Where something in us needs to change. Right? Think about it. Where you are. What is going on in your life that you wish were better? What is plaguing you that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it seems like you can never, ever get it right. You're always, you've kind of got this cycle and you hit a particular situation and it's just a downward spiral, right? Where you're just not responding well. That could be a relationship, a situation at work, be a scenario at home, right? You want to ask yourself, like, where do I need to grow? Where do I need the strengthening power of Jesus, I mean, you need his cleansing, obviously, but then you need to grow, right? We want to change. We want to become different. We want to become more like Jesus. So what the Lord's Supper does is it takes, it takes the perfect, resurrected, and exalted body of Jesus. He was perfect in every way that you fail, right? This is his perfect righteousness. You take this and you eat it. 
And His perfection fills you. This, 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 this ceremony, this, this sacrament, what it does is it, it, God is reminding you that when you think about your response to the situation, when you think about the way that you react, and stop there, think about the way Jesus reacts, right? That Jesus was always able to control His anger. Jesus was always patient. Jesus had this amazing way of really understanding not just what people said or what people did, but what they meant. And Jesus was able not to take what they're doing personally when it's not meant personally, but he was actually able to read what they meant and treat people according to what they meant and not what they said. Does that make sense? Like Jesus has this amazing ability to do that in ways that we don't. And God is saying, that Jesus is in you. That Jesus, your relationship with Him, because you abide in Him and He abides in you, that Jesus lives in you and touches every part of who you are. So when you're in that situation, you're not there alone anymore. You are there with the perfect, exalted, resurrected Jesus whose righteousness shines, whose righteousness hums in your heart, whose righteousness fills you. It's there. Not because of you, not because of me, but because of God. Because God has joined you to Jesus. That's what the picture is. That everything that Jesus is, you can have and you do have in your life. That gives you strength. It makes you strong in that moment when you're weak. It makes you strong in the moments before you get into that situation when you're weak. Right? So, I mean, this is what Jesus wants you to experience. He wants you to feel clean and strong when you come to the Lord's table. So, be thinking now, what do you need from Him? What do you want to come up and receive from Him? Because what's amazing is that as you come forward, you're taking this piece of bread, you're dipping it in a cup, but the picture is that you are taking Jesus Himself. That He is the one who is here, standing here, or here, right, offering his life for you. So when you come forward, you want to you look for Jesus. You want to look for Jesus. Um, this week, we saw, Lainey and I saw Super 8, you know, that movie, the sci-fi thriller with a bunch, you know, little kids. Um, so one of the pieces of the story is the, the, the main character, the boy, his mom dies at the beginning of the movie, and his dad has never, ever been present in his life. And so the movie is them sort of trying to figure that stuff out, right? Figure the relationship out. And there's a point in the movie where the boy is talking to somebody else about his mom. And he, he, he says, you know, my mom had this way of looking at me. So this way of looking at me. And I started to well up. And I wrote, I wrote down what he said. He said that she would look at me and I knew I was there. She'd look at me, and I knew I existed. Friends, that's, that's what Jesus does in communion. Jesus is looking at you. Have you ever seen his face? Have you ever imagined what he looks like? You know, the expression on his face as you come for communion, as I go to communion, right? The, the, the expression on his face is one of deep understanding. Like he really understands what it's like for you to live your life. 
He knows every problem. He knows every strained situation. He knows every broken relationship. He knows everything that is good and glorious in your life. Everything that's going, and he knows how hard it is. And he's got this amazing love that sees the best in you and wants that to grow. He's got this ability to look at the stuff in your life that's wrong, to look at your sin. And he's got this look that is able to make, you, make it really clear that he knows the sins that you're committing. He understands the challenges and the temptations that you face. And he loves you and is desperately wanting to work with you in those situations. And you try to, like, that's the Jesus that you're coming to. Right? He's the one who is looking at you, loving you, forgiving you, cleansing you, and strengthening you. He's the one who wants to make you feel clean and strong at the Lord's table. This is all that he tries to pour into you if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive. The Lord's Supper pours into you. Our second point is that the Lord's Supper calls for celebration. Okay, it calls for celebration. Um, That's what communion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a celebration. We're celebrating the good news of Jesus. Now, what happened to Jesus was awful. Okay, the torture that he had to endure, the physical torture of the cross, the, the spiritual torture of being separated from God the Father, these things were awful. Our sin put him there. Your sin, my sin, it put him there. And our sin is awful. Our sin offends God. Our sin destroys relationships. Our sin enslaves us. And yet, the cross has become the universal symbol in the Christian church for the salvation of the world. Like the cross, which was the worst thing that ever happened, the worst injustice ever perpetrated in history, has become the source of hope and redemption and forgiveness and salvation. The cross shows us that there is no limit to how far God will go to save us. The cross shows us that there is no limit to the love of God. The cross shows us that God has the power to overcome the evil in our lives and the sin that enslaves us. And so God has ordained the Lord's Supper to be the place where we celebrate, not our sin, but on Jesus' victory over sin. It's designed to be a celebration because we celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection for us. You think back to the parable of the prodigal sons, right, at the beginning of our series. The Lord's Supper is like the party that the father threw when his son came home. That's the feeling that God wants us to have with this with this meal. You know, he, he wants to celebrate that his family has finally returned, that his family has come together, the lost have been found, the dead have been raised to new life. God wants to make merry and celebrate. And in the Bible, the most consistent symbol of celebration is wine. It's wine. This is why wine was used by Jesus at the Last Supper. It was used during the Passover feast that Jesus transformed into something new, into a celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, up till now at Harbor, we've celebrated communion with grape juice. Uh, But starting today, we're going to add wine. Okay, uh, we'll have two chalices on both sides. So no matter which side you come down on, there'll be a chalice of wine, a chalice of grape juice, so that you can choose between taking wine or grape juice as you come forward. And we're adding wine to communion because, and there's several reasons, it's what God instituted. 
And, and truly, we don't want to miss out on the symbolism that wine has in the Bible. So I want to spend just a couple minutes looking at the symbolism so we can understand it. Look at the next verse there uh, on your sheet on page 6. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. So we see here, God causes plants to grow and wine to ferment so that wine would gladden our hearts. So wine is a gift from God. Look next, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So not just a general gift from God, but actually a reward for those who honor God are vats in abundance of wine. Look at the next verse, Isaiah 55.1. We did this in our call to worship. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the call of the gospel. This is God offering his salvation, his forgiveness, the blessings of knowing him, and it's free. And so we see that wine is actually a picture of the freedom of God's forgiveness and salvation. Well then, let's turn to the New Testament, right? These are Old Testament verses. Um, what did Jesus have to say about wine? We'll look there, John 2, verses 2 through 10. Jesus also was invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, there were six stone water jars there, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he said to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. We see in this passage, Jesus actually makes 120 to 180 gallons of really good wine for a wedding feast. This was in addition to the wine that had already been drunk at the feast. Um, verse 11 in this passage, the very next verse actually says that this was the first miracle that Jesus did so that his followers could know who he was. Next verse, Matthew 11, verses 18 to 19. Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we see that Jesus' own personal use of wine was such that he was accused of being a drunk. So we see here that Jesus' understanding of wine was the same as the Old Testament's understanding. Jesus knew that wine was an expression of the joy of life. Is the happiness that God wants everyone to experience. But, right? But this isn't the only thing the Bible has to say about wine, about drinking. Uh, the Bible's really clear that wine can be abused and that that abuse must be avoided. Right? Look at the next verse. Proverbs 23, verses 20 and 21. It says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. The New Testament says the same thing, Ephesians 5, verse 18. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we see, it's clear, drunkenness is a sin. And drunkenness is a sin that will keep us from following Jesus. Okay, so what do we see here? We see that wine is not sinful. It's a gift from God. But the abuse of wine is sinful. Just as the abuse of sex, the abuse of money, the abuse of power. You know, every good gift that God gives, we can turn it into something unrighteous. We can turn it into something that will enslave us, that, that ends up taking control over us. And so what do we do when we have these two things? These two things the Bible talks about, that wine is good, but its abuse is bad? Well, whenever you have the Bible talking like that, it's a call for wisdom. And the Bible's going to call all of us to be wise. Right? And so, as we add wine to our celebration of the Lord's Supper, you're going to need to use wisdom. If taking wine during communion is going to cause you to sin, or it's going to cause you to fall into sin, then you should drink the grape juice. There's no shame, there's no harm, there's no, no, nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I know myself, and if I were to do this, it's going to lead me down a road that I cannot handle. We've got folks that struggle with alcoholism in our family. Um, you'll be able to tell the difference in the chalices. Okay? We want to make it really clear. Um, the wine is in the shorter chalices, the juice is in the taller chalices. Easy to remember, right? Juice has more letters in it than wine, and so juice is taller than wine. Right? How's that? In addition, um, each of the chalices has a little uh, stem tag on it. The ones that have wine in it have the tag that says W. Okay, the ones that have juice on it, guess what they have? It says J. So the people will be standing here, you can choose. Okay? I, I mean, and seriously, like, I don't want this to be the cause of anybody to stumble. Um, I don't want anybody to, be, uh, to, to make the wrong choice. Okay? And so um, the point, though, the point is, the, the reason that we're doing this is because the Lord's Supper is calling us to celebrate Jesus. It's a celebration of Jesus and what he means to us. God wants us to rejoice in his presence. Okay? And in the Lord's Supper, he is calling us to celebrate. So, our third point, our last point, is that the Lord's Supper pours out of you. Okay? It pours into you, it calls you to celebrate, and then it pours out of you. And as it pours out of you, it pours out of you, it pours through you to others. Okay, the healthiest life that you can live, the most spiritually alive life that you can live, the best life that you can live, the life that is most like what your life will be like in heaven forever and ever and ever, is a life that is both filled with the blessings of Jesus today and pouring those blessings out and sharing those blessings with others. Okay, and so, and the Lord's Supper does this. It calls us to pour out the blessings that we receive into the church. Look back at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we see we are one body. We see that Jesus is one body. There's one loaf. There's one body of Christ. And we, we, we sort of enact this, right? As you come down the aisle, 
you are all getting in line with each other, right? You are all getting in line and you're acting like you are unified. You are acting like a family, like you are one person, in a sense, coming to the head who is Jesus, right? You're one body in Christ. And we enact this as you come forward and take the Lord's Supper. That's the image. That's the image that the Lord's Supper is trying to give us. And this is why conflicts within the church have got to be resolved. Because if we're coming down and looking and acting like we are one family, when we're not, what is that saying about Jesus? We're making Jesus out, in a sense, to be a liar. We are united to him. And because we're a church family, we are united to each other. Since he has forgiven us such an amazing debt of sin, we need to pursue each other to be reconciled. We need to make sure that conflicts get dealt with, right? That you don't sit on things, that you don't stew over things, but that you address them, that you go and seek to be reconciled. And if it doesn't work, that you get help. You ask someone else to help you to be able to understand each other. Right? This is the process that's laid out in Matthew chapter 18. Right? This is so vital because Jesus even says, like this is part of being a blessing to others, is that it says that the world will know that Jesus is the Savior and the Messiah if his family loves each other. It's based on the way his family treats each other. So don't leave today. If you've got a conflict with somebody, don't leave until you've taken steps to make it right. And so the, the Lord's Supper, it pours out of us so that we will pour into the church, but we also become the wine of God for others outside. Um, look at this last verse. This blew me away as I read it and thought about it. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so God is calling Israel his own vineyard. And so that means, usually, if the Bible talks about something that's true about Israel, you can usually say, well, it's also true about the church. Okay, that God's vineyard is his people. That we now are God's vineyard. And when you combine that with the reality that wine was created by God to make glad, for joy and for celebration, what this verse means is that God's people are supposed to be a source of celebration and rejoicing for others. Okay? That God is calling you, in a sense, to be wine for others. The impact that wine has to make the heart glad, to bring about a, a spirit of festivity, of festivity and rejoicing and celebration, God wants your life to have that impact on the people around you. The blessings of Jesus that poured into us so that we can share them with others. That's the call. That's the call. It's even related to the word Eucharist. Right? There are some church traditions that call this the Eucharist. And the word Eucharist is made up of two Greek words. Eu, which means good, and charisdo, which means gift. And so what this table is, this table is the good gift of God. What Isaiah 5-7 is, is telling us is that as you come forward and receive the good gift of Jesus, God is going to make you into a good gift for the world. Jesus, who opened himself up and poured himself out for you, he fills you so that you can open yourself up and pour yourself out for others. Right. 
Lord, would you help us to participate in your supper in a way that we never have before? Would you help us to be able to see you, to see your good gift, and to receive it? Lord, help us to feel clean and strong. Empower us so that every single one of us this week could be a good gift to someone else. Overwhelm us with your grace and your love so that we would be willing to be spent for you. We'd be willing to put others' needs ahead of our own to be a good gift. And Lord, for those folks who are here who haven't yet trusted in you, would you help them to see this good gift is for them? Help them to confess their sins, confess their sins, and then to come and receive you and your salvation. Jesus, thank you for the way that you are willing to look at us to help us see that you want us to be strong, that you want us to know that you've cleansed us. Help us now to commune with you. Amen.